Now let us turn to the Word of God for a scripture reading. I invite you to open your Bible in the book of Psalms and we're turning to the Psalm number 22, please. The Psalm number 22 and beginning to read at the verse 1. Psalm number 22 and the opening verse, please. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and I am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, saying he delighteth in him. But thou, but thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon me from the womb. Thou art my God and from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of passion have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melteth in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot shred, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierce my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my festure. Amen, and O God, well bless the reading of this portion of this psalm to all of our hearts. Let's just pray together, seek God's blessing upon his word. Father in heaven, we bow before thee, and we thank the Lord for the sacred scriptures of truth. Thy word is truth, even from the beginning. And Lord, we pray now that as we turn to the preaching of thy word, Lord, that it might not rest or be in the enticing words of man's wisdom, but rather in the power and demonstration of the Spirit of God. Lord, we pray that you'll bless the reading of thy word to our hearts, and now bless our meditation upon it, and grant, Lord, that in all things thy word will be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you, Lord, that your word is a gospel lamp, showing us the way of salvation, that your word is a spiritual lamp, Lord, showing us how we should walk and live daily. And so, Lord, we just pray that now the Holy Spirit will take up his own sword, the sword of the Spirit, and, Lord, will wield it with power 
out of every heart. And oh God, enable us now to be like Mary, Lord, and to choose that good part and to sit at the feet of Jesus and to hear his voice. Oh God, we're so like Martha by nature, cumbered about with much serving, good in itself, but Mary chose the better part. So Lord, be with us now and grant us help from heaven. We'll be careful to give thee all the praise, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And if anyone more served tonight, I want to draw your attention to this psalm that we have just read together from. As you read through the book of Psalms, you will find that the Psalms very generally can be divided up into three main categories. First of all, you have historical Psalms relating events and happenings in the life of David, the man after God's own heart. You'll recall her that Psalm 51 is one of those historical psalms, penitential psalm written by David after he had blotted his copybook and ter committed that terrible sin uh, with Bathsheba. And how he had to cry out, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And you'll find scattered throughout the 150 psalms that there are many of these historical psalms dealing with the life story of David, the man of God. And then you have on the opposite scale, not only do you have historical psalms, but you have prophetical psalms. And these are psalms in which David is inspired by the Holy Ghost to write not only about himself, but King David's greater son, the son of David himself, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And then a moment or two, we'll look at one of these prophetical psalms, the psalm from which we read together this evening. And then you have, of course, sandwiched in between the historical psalms and the prophetical psalms, we have these devotional psalms. They're psalms of praise and of thanksgiving and worship and adoration. And David is not asking God or beseeching God with any specific request, but rather he's worshipping the Lord in the beauty of holiness and he's taken up in devotion and he's bringing unto God the sacrifices of praise and giving to him the sweet cane of worship and the praise that is due to his holy name. And so you have these devotional psalms now, it's interesting to notice here that Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24 are a trilogy of psalms, that is, they're a group of psalms on their own. And if you look there in Psalm 22, it is the psalm of the Saviour. And then if you look at Psalm 23, it is the song, a psalm of the Shepherd. And then if you look at Psalm 24, you'll discover that it's a la, the Psalm of the Sovereign. And uh, the, there David sees the Lord as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so you have these three Psalms that ought to be taken together. The Psalm of the Saviour, the Psalm of uh, the Shepherd, and the Psalm of the Sovereign. Now, when you come back again to this 22nd Psalm, it is, of course, the Psalm of the Cross. 
And it's almost as if that David, by divine inspiration, is standing at the foot of the cross, and he's an eyewitness, and he's witnessing all that is taking place at Calvary. And in many ways, this psalm is like Isaiah 53, and those two great portions of Scripture. It's as if the author of those portions of the Word of God are standing at the foot of the middle cross of Calvary and giving us a divine record of what is taking place. And I want just very simply tonight to look at some of the lessons that we learn here from this psalm of the cross. Now you'll notice first of all that we have the cry of the cross. Look at the cry of the cross that this psalm opens with those tremendous words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you'll recall that this is one of the seven sayings of the Lord Jesus upon the cross. And how that the Lord in Matthew 27 and verse 46, after the three hours of darkness, when the sun went down and refused to shine, and it was at the end of those three hours of darkness that the darkness of Calvary's cross fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of soul darkness he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And here you have the cry of the cross. Now these words were not true of David. You remember David later on, he said, I have been young and now I am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. But here under the pen of divine inspiration, he's writing not about himself, but rather he's speaking and writing about the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, the reason why the Lord Jesus Christ was forsaken on the cross, is found there in verse 3. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of God. You see, the Bible teaches us in many scriptures and in the book of Habakkuk that God is of pure eyes than to behold iniquity, that God cannot look upon sin or tolerate sin. And at that moment when the Lord Jesus Christ, his soul was made an offering for sin. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. When he died as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And all the sin of the world passed present and future of God's people was laid upon the Lord uh, Jesus Christ and he bore our sin that he who knew no sin was made sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him and it was at that split second that God turned away his face now not his heart he always loved his beloved son but he turned away his face as the Lord Jesus Christ became our substitute and sin bearer upon the cross. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, when thinking 
much in these days as we've celebrated Martin Luther and the great Reformation. Martin Luther was contemplating and meditating upon these words. And as he read these words of this psalm, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He jumped up from his desk and he shouted out, God forsaken by God, who could understand it? And Luther was absolutely right. That's one of the mysteries of the cross, that God forsaken by God, that God turned his face away from his son and deserted him upon the cross as he was our sinner on Calvary's cross. It's no wonder the hymn writer says, Oh, help me understand it. Oh, help me take it in what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. And oh, beloved, there's a length and a breadth and a height and a depth in the cross of Calvary that you and I will never comprehend or understand it. But the reason why he was forsaken was that you might be forgiven, that you might be pardoned, that your name might be written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that your sins would be blotted out and you would be assured of a place in heaven. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, the cry of the cross. But then notice quickly also the Christ of the cross. Look at the Christ of the cross. Look at verse 6, and here's the Lord speaking of himself. And he said, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. Hold the Christ of the cross. And he introduces himself and he speaks of himself. And he says, But I am a worm. Now, when you read the scriptures, you'll find that the worm in the Bible always is taken as an object or a symbol of contempt. Remember the Lord, speaking of Jacob, he referred to him as thy worm, Jacob. Uh, and when you, even today we'd say, well, he's only a worm. It's a term of contempt. And how you despise someone, you say, well, you know, he's really only a worm. And yet here the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, he says, I am a worm and no man. You ever think of the difference between a worm and a serpent? I was reading just the other week there in the paper an article and a man was pushing a pram in England and he was in one of the parks and uh, he happened to look down and as he was pushing the child in the pram, the bogey, there was this long snake. He couldn't believe his eyes and he did that. I just swipe it away from his child and as quick as a flash they Serpent struck out, and my, the fangs were there. He was bitten, and he almost lost his life. It showed you a picture of him in the hospital and uh, recovering. And that's the difference between a, a serpent and a worm. You see, you stand on a worm, and it's crushed. But my, you stand on a serpent, and it lashes out. And here do you remember in the word of God how 
But they came to arrest the Lord Jesus. And he said, what? Do you not know that I could call 10,000 angels? They're at my command. And he could have called them to destroy the world. But he was a worm. And he was willing to be crushed. And he was willing to drink that dreadful cup of being separated from God and bearing our sin upon the cross. He didn't retaliate like the serpent. Remember the first thing that he prayed on the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Paul reminds us in the Philippian epistle, does he not, or that the Lord, though he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation. And how that he was born of a woman. He came and he lived a sinless life and he died that awful death on the cross, being crushed like a worm for you and for me. What a saviour. But then notice not only the cry of the cross and the Christ of the cross, but quickly notice the crowd around the cross. And if you look there in verses 6 and 7, you'll see a glimpse of the crowd of the cross. But I am a worm and no man. Listen, a reproach of men and despise of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, saying he delighteth in him. And here's the crowd that was around the cross. You know, at Easter time, I was reading Matthew chapter 27 during Easter week, and it struck me as never before that Matthew mentions twice the fact that they mocked the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, to mock someone because of a physical infirmity or speech impediment or some other reason, whatever it might be, it's a very cruel thing. And you see man's cruelty at the cross when they mock the Lord Jesus Christ. And you find here how they mocked him in so many ways when you read the Gospels. They mocked his majesty. Do you remember when he was taken into Pilate's judgment hall and the soldiers were there? And they were supposed to protect him. See that he got a fair trial. And the soldiers mocked him. <laughs> and they'd heard Pilate say, Behold your king. Oh, this man claims to be the king of the Jews. And a king needs a fester, he needs a coat, he needs a robe. And one of them takes off his tunic and the inside was purple. And he turns it inside out and he puts it upon Christ. <laughs> you know, you've got your robe. And another said, he, huh. He's a king, he needs a scepter. You can't be a king without a scepter. And he goes out and he gets a large, tall reed, strips it down and brings it in and he places it in the hands of Christ. And there he is with a robe and a scepter, the reed in his hand. And then one of them says, you know, he can't be a king without a crown. And he goes into the gardens in the judgment hall and there's these rough thorns growing, and I've seen them in the land of Israel. 
And they're not little thorns that we have in our roses or bushes here. They're like spikes. They're like nails. And he, with rough hands, he twists these thorns together into a crown. And he comes back in. And he's laughing and he's sneering. And he's, oh, he's got his reed. He's got his robe. Now he has his crown. And the book says that he placed it upon his head. Oh, they mocked his majesty at Calvary. And I'll tell you something else. They mocked his ministry. They mocked his ministry. Try to twist and pervert his words. Look at this man here. The man who said he would destroy the temple in three days and he would raise it up again. And of course, the Lord wasn't talking about the literal temple that stood in the centre of Jerusalem where the Jews gathered, but rather he was speaking about the temple of his body, how they would destroy his body, that he would lay down his life, and on the third day he would raise it up again. He had power to lay down his life, and he had power to take it up again. But they mocked his ministry, and they twisted, and they perverted his word. And it's not what every old reprobate of a Christ rejector and modernist preacher does. They mock his ministry. They tell you he didn't really turn the water into wine. It was just a joke. He didn't really walk upon the Sea of Galilee. He was just walking uh, along the side of the seashore and his disciples misunderstood it. And so it goes on and he didn't really feed the 5,000 he just took the wee boys' lunch and he gave them an example of how to share their lunches together. Do you ever hear such nonsense in all your life? And what they're doing is they're mocking the ministry of the blessed Son of God. What they did on the cross, the modernists do today. I'm glad. And the free churches have got many imperfections. And having served in it for over 50 years, I know them inside out. But I tell you this, thank God, with no modernness in the pulpit. Every man that stands behind the sacred desk believes a Bible to be the word of God and believes Christ to be the divine, supernatural Son of God. So they mocked his majesty as king. They mocked his ministry as prophet. And then they mocked his mercy as priest. <laughs> Listen to what they say here, because if you look there in verse 8, it says this, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, saying he delighteth in him, and does not bring you right to the cross. And the cry of the crowd around the cross was this, He saved others. And look, he saved others. And they're wagging their head and they're pointing their finger uh, and they're making a, a mockery of Christ. Huh, here's the man who saved others. And he's nailed to the cross himself. He cannot save. And they're making a mockery out of the cross. And you know that's what every Christ rejector does. Every person out of sight of Christ. They make a mockery of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can get to heaven by your good works and your own attainments. Tell me, why did Jesus have to die upon the cross? 
Remember old Dr. Iron said, he wrote in his Bible, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I rest my whole eternity. The finished work of Christ. He saved others himself he cannot see. But then notice quickly the crucifixion by the cross. Turn your eye to verse 16. And the last part of the verse says, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. Now watch this. They pierced my hands and my feet. They pierced my hands and my feet. And the remarkable thing is this, that this psalm was written at least 750 to 800 years before the crucifixion, death by crucifixion, was ever introduced. Introduced by the Persians, and then it was taken over by the Romans. And it was an awful, cruel death. And they would get the victim and they would nail him to the cross and the cross would be laid on the ground and my, they would stretch him out and his hands would be nailed to the cross beam. And then the feet together would be nailed to the bottom of the cross. And he'd be stretched out upon the cross as it was placed into that prepared socket on the ground. And every bone would be pulled out of joint and that's what it means there when the psalmist says in verse 17, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. And you can see the bones of Christ being pulled out of joint like any other victim, like the two other thieves upon the cross. Now not one bone of him was broken. But my, his very bones would be pulled out of joint in agony upon the cross. But here's this little significant detail. They pierce my hands and my feet. One of the old perversions puts it this way. The New English Bible, they hacked off my hands and my feet. That's how they translate the Hebrew here. It's totally foreign to the text of the word of God. Thank God on the cross they never hacked off the hands and the feet of the Savior. When the Lord met Thomas and all his doubts, he said, Behold, my hands and my side. And he could see the visible wounds and of the scars of Christ as a result of being nailed to the cross. You ever stop to think of it? And crucifixion was probably one of the most cruel methods of death that was ever invented. It was so cruel and you died with such indignity because the prisoner would be stripped naked. Never forget that. This book says of Christ he despised the shame. And there he was stripped naked upon the cross, hands and feet impaled upon the cross for the nails. And he did it all for you and for me. And under Roman law, no Roman citizen was allowed to be crucified. It was such an undignified death and it was only reserved for those who committed murder and treason and were the enemies of the state of the empire of Rome. 
And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, his hands and his feet were pierced on the cross and he died that awful death of agony and of shame for you and for me. I love that old hymn we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. And so you can see the crucifixion by the cross. But then finally look at the conquest of the cross. You know, this psalm ends in a remarkable way. Look what it says in verse 30 and verse 31. A seed shall serve him. Does not remind you of Isaiah 53? He shall see a seed. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. Now watch this little phrase. That he hath done this. And in the Hebrew, it's just one word, Selah. S-H. A-H, I think it is, from memory. But anyway, it just means finished or done. It's just one word. And isn't it remarkable that this psalm that begins with the cry of the cross, ends with the cry of the cross. It is finished. He hath done this. And thank God the Lord Jesus completed the work of your salvation on mine at Calvary. And when he said it is finished, sin was finished, Satan was finished, suffering was finished, separation was finished. But thank God, most of all, salvation was finished. You know, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, on one occasion was traveling from Chicago to another city by train to conduct an evangelistic campaign and the guard came down the train and he said, Mr. Moody, uh, the engine driver uh, is aware of the fact that you're on board the train and he's asked if you would mind coming up and sitting with him up in the engine department of the train. He would like to talk to you. And Moody, always quick to seize an opportunity and personal witness, said certainly. And he made his way up the train through the carriages and he came to uh, where this engine driver was and the engine driver thanked him for coming and then he opened up and it turned out he was a Mormon and for the next half hour to 40 minutes he talked to Moody about Mormonism and the Mormon way of salvation and how, what all you had to do uh, to get to heaven and you wouldn't believe it if I told you the Mormon way of salvation so ridiculous but anyway, Moody sat there, never said a word, was very patient. And after the man had expended himself and came to the end of what he had to say, Moody looked at him and he said, Sir, the difference between your religion and mine is in two letters. I said, what do you mean, Mr. Moody? He said, your religion, sir, is a religion of do. Mine is a religion of done. Jesus did it all upon the cross. And we can say tonight, Jesus paid it all. Oh, thank God. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. 
And let me tell you this, Christ was not a victim on the cross. Christ was the victor. He finished the work that the Father gave him to do. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so take time to read this old psalm. It's claimed that there's over 31 different connections with the cross recorded in Psalm uh, 22. I've only mentioned five of them, but you can do your homework and you can study this wonderful Psalm of the Cross for yourself. And if you're here and you're not saved, remember he did it all for you. May the Lord read his word upon our hearts.